Um, hey, let's have a sermon today. If you've already looked at your sermon notes, you might be questioning the decision to have come to church this morning. Um, <laughs> we've been talking about all these afterwords and what the Bible says about what comes after this life. A couple weeks ago, I talked about heaven. Uh, last week, I talked about some of the specific things that the Bible says about what awaits us immediately following our last breath. A few weeks before that, we talked about eternity. Look, we got to get around to the other side of the coin here, don't we? And so today, I'm going to preach a message called Afterwards About Hell, um, which is going to be fun for you and fun for me. Mention the word hell to the typical uh, person, and some very distinct images come to mind for most people. You, we think of hell, we think of hell as being physically located in the bowels of the earth, in the, in the center of our planet. Uh, we think of hell sometimes as, as the devil's kingdom where he presides over the torture of the wicked. We think of hell sometimes and picture raging caverns of boiling lava uh, with multiple levels that just get worse and worse and worse as you go deeper and deeper and deeper into the depths of hell. I find these to be the common images of hell and what it's like. Uh, none of them really do a particularly good job of reflecting what the Bible does say about hell. Most of these images have much more to do with medieval literature and artwork than anything that you would find in the Bible. And so I thought in a moment of weakness, maybe I'll preach a sermon about what the Bible actually says about hell. Hell is one of the most debated and misunderstood concepts in the Christian faith. The challenge is that, that we don't really like to talk about it. I have, I'm 46 years old, I've been in church almost every Sunday of my life that I can remember. I've been in hundreds and thousands of, of small groups and midweek services and this and that, and I can probably count on one hand the number of times I've heard a pastor preach about hell. We don't like to talk about it. We certainly don't like to listen to people who are talking about it. It makes us feel awkward. It's uncomfortable. And so you say, so then Dan, why on earth are you doing this? What's the point today? And I kind of want to explore that before I dive into the sermon because you know, maybe, just maybe, I do a really good job today of telling you what the Bible says about hell, and you walk out of here knowing a little bit more, being a little bit smarter about what God's Word says about hell. Okay, I guess that would be good. I'd rather we know what the Bible says than, than be confused by the other images, but look, I'm not here to... to to make a smarter church, like that's not the point, nice fringe benefit of reading the Bible, but we aren't here to get smarter, and I'm not going to preach about hell today hoping that you guys get, get smarter and know the answers to more Bible trivia questions. Maybe, maybe I could preach about hell and be really passionate. Maybe I could bang my fist on the pulpit a few times. Maybe I could make it sound really, really scary. And maybe if I do that well, a few people will get so scared that they decide to get right with Jesus. And while I'm always in favor of somebody getting right with Jesus... I'm inclined to think that fear isn't a very effective or long-lasting motivator for that sort of thing. As I read scripture, Jesus loved a lot of people into the kingdom. 
And so it doesn't make sense to me that we should try to scare people into the same kingdom that Jesus loved people into. So that's not really my intent and my purpose today. Uh, I hope I don't scare anybody. Here's what I want to do today. I am going to preach a sermon about hell, and I don't want you to walk away scared. It wouldn't bother me if you walked away a little bit smarter. If you said, oh, I I didn't realize that If, if we learned a few things as we looked at the word of God, but that's not really the focus or the intent and purpose either. I am going to aim for a different goal today. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm laying this out and you get to evaluate me as I go. I want to preach a sermon about hell that's going to leave you encouraged. And then you can decide if I did that well or not, but you got to give me time. Okay, (laughs) that's my goal today. I want to preach a sermon about hell that makes people say, I'm glad I heard that. I feel better now. Do you think we could do that? Do you think, okay, I'm I'm shooting for that. It's going to take me a few minutes to get there. So bear with me. But that's the goal today. To that end, I want to tell you a story. There's a valley just outside the city of Jerusalem that was considered sacred to the pagan tribes that lived there before the Israelites came to the promised land. So we know Moses led the Israelites across the Red Sea and Joshua led them into the promised land. And over the course of the next generation, they spread out and proliferated. And during that time, they were kind of displacing the tribes that lived there before them. These tribes were polytheistic. They were far from God. We would use the word literally pagan to describe them. And there's a valley out side of the city that would become Jerusalem that was of particular sacred importance to the pagan tribes that lived there. The Israelites, when they arrived, they gave that valley the Hebrew term Jehana. It was in Jehana that the pagans had performed some of their most important religious ceremonies. Most notably, it was in Jehana where they sacrificed their children by burning them in fire as offerings to their god Molech. And so when the Israelites arrived in that area and discovered what had been taking place in Jehanna, not just for generations, but for hundreds, perhaps even thousands of years, they knew about that place. They knew that it was uh, a, a terrible, terrible place. And it became to them a place symbolic of evil and of suffering. The knowledge of what had taken place there through the centuries still hung in the air. It was palpable to them. This summer, my family and I vacationed in San Francisco. We took a tour of Alcatraz Prison out on Alcatraz Island. There are places on that tour where you can step into the jail cells, the real jail cells that were occupied by the prisoners there. There are places on that tour where you can step into the pitch black, dark solitary confinement cells just about eight feet wide and it's eerie to be there i can only imagine that jehana was was that times a hundred times a thousand times ten thousand ad infinitum to the israelites because they knew what happened there and the evil hung on that place so thick that you could practically smell it 
Now, by the time of Jesus, there are those that have suggested that the Valley of Jehanna was being used as a garbage dump and as a landfill and that the the trash that was thrown there would burn and burn and the smoke would drift and waft into the area around Jerusalem. Perhaps you've heard that or, or read about that before. I can tell you that we really have no direct evidence that that's the case. There's no history that says that that's what happened. There's no archaeological evidence that that's what happened. The idea that Jehanna had become a garbage dump, we trace back only to some writings of of some monks from the Middle Ages. Perhaps it was a garbage dump, perhaps it wasn't. We really don't know for sure, and there's really no way of saying for sure. There's really no way of finding out. Set that aside, regardless, Jesus certainly knew about Johanna's history because still by his time, most everybody in that area knew about Johanna's history. And so Jesus, like many other teachers in his day, used the name Johanna symbolically to describe evil, to describe suffering. He borrowed the imagery of being burned in fire and he talked about the destruction that was in store for wickedness. And we take that ancient word Johanna and translate it into English and we say hell. This is where our concept of hell comes from. People these days sometimes question how Christians can reconcile their belief in hell with the teachings of Jesus. After all, they say, Jesus taught about love and about forgiveness, not about judgment and destruction. If that's a question you have today, I share that story at the beginning to tell you this. The truth is, the truth is that our understanding of hell comes in large part from the teaching of Jesus. There is no speaker in the Bible who said more about hell than Jesus himself. And most of the scripture that I'm going to read to you today are direct quotes from Jesus. So let me show you what he had to say. We start here. God prepared hell for fallen angels, not people. People say, well, why would God have a hell? Why is hell a thing, we would say in today's vernacular. And Jesus begins by explaining to us or showing us, demonstrating that God prepared hell for fallen angels, not people. Next week, I'm going to talk about angels. I'm going to talk about the nature of angels, their role in the heavenlies, their role in the afterwards, fallen angels, what exactly that means. So if you're not sure exactly what I'm talking about here, put a bookmark in it and come back next week. God prepared hell for fallen angels, not for people. Now, I am not suggesting that people don't go to hell. I'm going to address that in a couple of minutes. But it's important to start by understanding that hell was not designed as a mechanism to punish people. As far as God is concerned, no one actually belongs there. The book of 2 Peter, it's not the verse I have referenced here, but you can make a note of it if you like. The book of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 tells us the Lord does not want anyone to be destroyed. He does not want anyone to be destroyed. He wants everyone to repent. That's his desire. But regrettably, in this regard, the Bible tells us that God will not get what he wants. God will not get what he wants. God did not create hell so that he could send people there. But unfortunately, Jesus affirms That's exactly what's going to happen. 
He talks about hell and, and, and the end of the age in Matthew chapter 25. He says to his followers in verse 41, Then the king will turn to those on his left, sorry guys, and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared, not for you, prepared for the devil and for his demons. That's why hell exists. It was prepared for the devil and his demons. So hell was designed by God as a place of punishment, not for people, but for spiritual beings. Yet, God has the authority to send people to hell. He didn't design hell for them, but the Bible affirms, the words of Jesus himself affirm that even so, God retains the authority to send people there. The idea here is really a pretty simple one. God is God, I am not. God has the authority to do what he will. Sometimes people say things about how they could never believe in a God who would send someone to hell. Some of us have probably thought that ourselves. We've certainly heard it when people, when the topic of hell comes up, people who are are, are pushing back on it, perhaps are not of the Christian faith, will say, I could never believe in a God who would send someone to hell. And while I understand the emotion behind that statement, I certainly understand the drive and the desire and the impulse to think there must be a nicer way. I don't understand the logic. I don't understand the logic of trying to say, I could never believe in a God who would do this. Here's what I mean by that. Just because I don't like something doesn't mean it's not true. Let me say that again. Just because I don't like something doesn't mean it's not true. Each of the last two years, the Green Bay Packers have won the NFC North Division. I'm looking at you, and I'm looking at you right now. I don't like it. I don't want to believe in a God who would allow that to happen. And most prognosticators say they're going to run away with it for a third time this year. I do not want to believe in a God who would allow that kind of evil to proliferate. But just because I don't like it, doesn't mean it's not true. Just because I don't wanna believe it, doesn't mean it's not true. When people say things about not believing in a God who sends people to hell, I think they're approaching the situation as if the God that the Bible describes is one possibility among many and each of us is free to choose a particular philosophy of our liking and live out our lives accordingly. Sounds like secular humanism to me. Sounds like the way most of the modern Western world thinks. Here's the problem. God never intends to afford us that opportunity. That is not the idea here. That is not what the Bible says. That is not the option that God has given. He is not one choice among many on a buffet. He's God. Now this may sound harsh, but it's an important foundational part of being a follower of Jesus Christ. The compelling issue isn't whether or not I like what he has to say. The compelling issue for me is am I gonna live my life in allegiance to what he has to say? Or am I gonna live my life in rebellion against what he has to say? 
Whether I like it or not is really not the point. The point is, am I going to live my life in allegiance to it? Or am I going to live my life in rebellion to it? There really is no other choice. Jesus once had a conversation with his disciples about the things that they feared in this life. And the context here is that they were beginning to understand that the choice to live their lives in allegiance to what he had to say, for many of them very likely, was going to cost them their lives. And indeed, that's the way the history played out. As they're beginning to understand this, as they're beginning to understand the cost of following Jesus, Jesus is saying, don't be afraid of people who have the power to kill you. That's the advice he gives his followers. I know you feel afraid of these things, but he says, don't be afraid of the people who have the power to kill you. He follows it up in, I'm sorry, in Luke chapter 12, verse five, by saying this, but I'll tell you whom to fear. Fear God who has the power to kill you and then throw you into hell. Yep, he's the one to fear. And I want to remind you today, because this already makes us feel a little itchy, doesn't it? This already makes us feel a little itchy. I want to remind you today, these are the words of Jesus Christ. This is not Christian philosophy. This is not medieval church. This is not theologians in, in, a, in, a, in a study somewhere writing papers. This is not the manipulation of the power structure of the powers that be. No, this is the Son of God. This is the son of God. And he's saying, don't be afraid of that stuff you guys are talking about. You, you want to know what we ought to be afraid of? Fear God. Fear God. He has the power not only to kill, but then to throw you into hell. <laughs> I picture Christ kind of smiling and saying, yeah, he's, he's the one to fear. He's the one to fear. The idea that God has the authority to send people to hell may not be a popular one. It may not be pleasant to think about. It certainly isn't politically correct, but it is in fact what Jesus said. So for those of us that choose to believe Jesus, who say, well, I want to cast my vote on that whole live my life in allegiance to what he said thing. If, if the issue is between allegiance and rebellion, I, I want to line up in the allegiance line here. If that's us, well, then the most important question about hell in terms of my personal life is the issue of avoiding it, isn't it? If God has the authority to send people there, on what basis does he exercise that authority, right? Could we all get a, a look at the rubric for the test here? Could we make sure that we're ready? In other words, how does God determine who ends up in hell? And I think you ask that question of a bunch of people and you're going to get answers about evil and you're going to get answers about wicked, wickedness. You're going to get answers about sin. You're probably going to hear the names of some specific people that we all presume are going to end up in hell. Uh, Adolf Hitler, Osama bin Laden, John Wayne Gacy, Aaron Rodgers. <laughs> Seriously. I did that. We're going to pick the evilest, the worst, the most decrepit individuals we can think of. And we're going to say hell, hell is for them. I've been to hundreds, perhaps thousands of funerals and memorial services in my life. I've never once heard people say, well, he's in hell now. <laughs> right? 
But we all have our ideas of who's the most evil. It has to do with, I mean, there's sin, right? But then there's sin, right? There's evil, right? But then there's evil. There's wickedness, but you get the idea. Now look, the idea that sin is what leads to hell is certainly an accurate one. But the interesting thing to me is that Jesus' words don't focus on sin. And look, it's a good thing. We're starting to sneak up on the encouragement part here, by the way, in case you're getting nervous about me. It's a good thing. It's a good thing Jesus didn't say that sinners go to hell. You know why that's a good thing? Because Jesus said all y'all are sinners. (laughs) It's a good thing that Jesus didn't say the evil go to hell. You know why? Because all y'all, according to Jesus, are evil. It's a good thing Jesus didn't say, well, we just take the wicked and, and we send them to hell, the most decrepit, and send them to hell. You know why? Because Apostle Paul says, what a wretched man am I. It's a good thing that's not the basis upon which Jesus says the Father makes his decisions about bound to heaven and bound to hell. You know what Jesus does say? According to Jesus, and this might surprise you, lack of fruit is a primary cause in being sent to hell. According to Jesus, it's the lack of fruitfulness in our lives that becomes the defining issue in who ends up in hell. Let me tell you what I mean. Jesus tells a number of stories throughout his ministry describing the separation of the heaven-bound and the hell-bound, describing the difference between the two, and he uses metaphors to tell these stories. In most of the metaphors, the difference between the heaven-bound and the hell-bound is production. It's fruitfulness. I'll give you some examples. In one instance, he reminds us how fruit trees that produce bad fruit are chopped down and used for firewood. Can't you, if they're not going to produce good fruit, the only thing they're good for is to be chopped up and burned. We're going to get some use out of them. We're going to use them for firewood. That's one story he tells. In another story, he, he tells a story about a master who, who gives his money to some servants, stewards really, whose job it is to use the money as the master intended. The master goes away for a while, and when he comes back, the servants who have invested the money well, the servants who have used the, the stock market to make more money, they've taken what they've been given and they've produced more, they are ushered into to reward. But the servant who said, I don't like to play the stock market, so I just took the money and I buried it in the back. Here it is. He returns it to the master. Every penny he was given, but he didn't produce. He didn't produce anything. And in that story, I want to read this to you. I want to quote it so I get it right. You know what Jesus says? He says, that servant was cast into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I submit to you, that's an image of hell. The one who wasn't fruitful, the one who isn't productive, is sent into hell. And in another story, a farmer harvests a a fruitful, productive crop of wheat. The wheat that flowers and buds and and produces is, is brought into the storehouse. But in the crop, there's also weeds that have grown. Weeds aren't good for anything. They don't fruit. They don't produce. They don't do anything. So the wheat... I'm sorry, the weeds are gathered and they're cast into the fire. They're burned. And here's what Jesus says about that story in particular. Matthew chapter 13, verse 40. He says, just as the weeds are sorted out and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the world. What's the difference? Fruitfulness. What's the difference? 
productivity. Now, I don't think this means Christians need to worry about producing in the way that we tend to think about it in order to avoid being sent to hell. I do not think that there is a statistical minimum number of people you have to have shared your faith with else you end up in hell. I don't think it's anything like that. I don't think it's about numbers. I don't think it's about statistics. I think these stories demonstrate, well, it's about relationship and it's about stewardship. In our culture, we tend to say it's about what you say you believe. We tend to think it's about belief, it's about assent, it's about the words that I spoke, it's about the, the verbal confession that I made. I just don't think that's the story scripture tells. I think scripture says, I think specifically Jesus says, it's about relationship and it's about stewardship. Let me tell you what I mean, relationship. A fruitful plant has a strong relationship with its root system. It derives its nutrients from the root system. It stays anchored because of the root system. It is completely and entirely dependent on the root system. And so the compelling question is, is that what my relationship with God looks like? Do I derive my nutrient from God? Do I stay anchored in my relationship with God in all circumstances? Am I completely dependent upon God? Or am I doing my own thing? Do I just kind of call on him when, when, when I need to or when I think it's convenient? That's the difference. How about stewardship? A good steward takes resources that he has been given and uses them as the master intended. A good steward recognizes in this life, everything we have, every aspect of our lives was given to us by God. Therefore, the, the compelling question here is, am I living my life the way God intended? I don't see a question here that says, do I go to church X number of Sundays out of the year? I do not see a question that says, did I recite the sinner's prayer at the altar? I do not see a question that says, how many days did I read the Bible? I do not see a question that says, was I baptized as an infant or when I got older? All of those are very good questions, but they are discipleship questions. They are not relevant to the heaven or hell question. As Jesus would teach it in any case. The question is, am I, am I using what God gave me the way he wants me to use it? That's the question. I think we would do well to stop thinking about hell as a place of punishment for the naughty. Or maybe for the naughty things that we've done. And start just focusing on our relationship with God and the stewardship of our lives. Make these things our focus. And hell just isn't an issue. Because as I said earlier, hell wasn't intended to be a place where people are destroyed. Hell is the place of sin's ultimate destruction. It's the ultimate destruction of sin. Our imaginative images of God kind of haphazardly tossing people off the edge into hell, these things are not helpful. And, and they, they very often miss the point. Like everything else in God's creation, hell has a purpose. And that purpose was meant for the benefit of God's beloved creation. We're sneaking up on the encouragement part here. 
I promise, I promise, I promise. I want you to hear that again. Like everything else in God's creation, hell has a purpose, and that purpose was meant for your benefit. It was meant for your benefit. You'll recall, I hope, the visions that that John writes in in the book of Revelation at the very end of our Bibles. Many of these apocalyptic visions that are kind of describing how God is revealing to him some things that are yet to come. In Revelation chapter 20, very, very near to the end of the book, very, very near to the very end of our Bibles. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, John in the spirit sees this vision and he says, Then the devil was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. There they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's that's what we've been waiting for, right? That's what we're looking for. That's the destruction of our enemy. That's hell serving its intended purpose. But John's vision doesn't stop there. Goes down a few verses later into verse 14. He says, then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. We sang those lines this morning. I didn't realize it. It didn't dawn on me until I was on the platform and we were in service singing them. But what we sang, and what a beautiful name it is, that the death and hell have been thrown into the grave. Death and the grave were thrown, excuse me, into the lake of fire. Death and the grave are both the effect of sin. And this is God saying, sin has no effect on you anymore. Because death is dead. Death is dead. The work of sin is being undone by God. Everything sin and evil and wickedness have ever purposed in your life. The word of God says at the end of time, God will undo that work in your life. And death, the ultimate, the final word that sin has over you, death will die. That's hell serving its purpose. That's hell serving his purpose. It says the lake of fire is the second death. I take that to mean it's the death of death. It's the death of death itself. But hauntingly, he gives us one more sentence here. You've already seen it on the screen. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown as well into the lake of fire. So do we see people in this image being thrown into hell? Yeah, of course. Do I like it? Well, I already told you how I feel about that. Not so much. It makes me itchy. But it's not people who were naughtier than I was being thrown into hell. It's people who are still covered with sin. When sin is destroyed, those who are still entangled in it meet a destruction as well. See, sin, I think, is like cancer. Cancer invades our bodies and it causes suffering. And the only way to beat that suffering is to destroy the cancer. We talk about cancer diagnoses, and and there's cancer diagnoses that are bad, and there's cancer diagnoses that are really bad. We have these kinds of levels in our own mind, in our our medical knowledge of of how cancer works. Oh, it's a bad one. Or, oh, well, maybe it's treatable, right? But here's the bottom line. Wherever cancer falls in that scale, if it's allowed to just proliferate and do its thing, what is its thing? Its thing is destruction. 
If it's allowed to do its thing, it's going to destroy. That's what it does. And the only way to stop that destruction is to kill the cancer. The thing that's killing has to be killed. And so medical science is working always to to develop ways of making that happen, ways of killing the thing that's doing the destroying. And so enter chemotherapy, right? And this is, in many cases, the most effective technique we have to destroy the thing that's doing the destroying. But as many of us tragically have learned in our lives and in the lives of our loved ones, chemotherapy kills the cancer, but it also destroys the good cells. It, ta- it does, you know, the, the, the cure is worse than the disease, as they say sometimes. Chemotherapy, it, when it's effective, yes, it'll destroy the cancer cells, but look at all the other things it will take with it. Look at all the other things it will destroy along the way. I want to submit this to you. Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great if we could just take the cancer out of the body and put it on a table and then pump it full of every chemotherapy we got and absolutely destroy it. Wouldn't it be great if medical science advanced to the point where the doctor said, well, I have bad news and I have good news. The bad news is we've detected cancer in your body. The good news is we're just going to take it out and we're going to put it on this table and we are going to destroy it. And you're going to walk out of the office just fine. Wouldn't that be great? That's the way to go, isn't it? Because anything short of that is just an attempt to kill it before it kills me. And we all know too well, in this life, we have mixed results with those efforts. This is what I think too many of us have missed when it comes to understanding hell. We have misunderstood the story. We have misunderstood the purpose. We have misunderstood the intent and we have obscured the good news. The word of God is good news. The words of Jesus are good news. Jesus said, I came to proclaim. That is, I came to speak words of good news to my people. And then he went and started talking about hell. Right? Isn't that what I've shown you today? We've got to be able to reconcile that. How can the words that Jesus said about hell, how can that be good news? Well, we have, as I see it, kind of two options for understanding how hell works. In my opinion, one of them doesn't work very well. It's by far the more common option that people understand and they think and they they learn and they say and we even repeat but it doesn't work so well. And it's one of the reasons we've all been sitting here a little bit nervous today. It's option number one. I call it the scare tactic. Option number one looks like this. We live our lives and we finally die, at which point God decides whether to let us into heaven or throw us into hell. I mean, that's the essence of the gospel as it is so often repeated. And it essentially boils down to a scare tactic. People, you better get this right because there's coming a day where God is either going to say, line up here or line up there. And you want to make sure you're in the right line. So you better get it right. Look, I don't like that story. 
There are too many questions in that story. There's too many things in that story that I don't feel real confident about. There's too many things about that way of telling the story that just kind of make me nauseous. Is anybody with me? There's too many things in there that make me think, did I really do it right? I mean, come on, God, I was even a pastor. <laughs> and then I look at some of my pastoral colleagues around the world and I think, I wasn't a pastor like that. I don't like option number one. Can I share with you option number two? And before we put it on the screens, let me say this. As I read the Bible's afterwards about hell, as I listen to what Jesus said about hell, this is what I think he clearly was telling us. And so I'll show you this, option number two, and I call it the good news. The good news is this, in love, because everything God does, he does out of love. Amen. And God, God prepared hell, which means it was with great love and care and intent focus on what would be for your benefit that he prepared a place that we call hell. In love, God has planned a final destruction for all wickedness, but has provided a way for us to be cleansed from that wickedness and saved from that destruction. You could say, so that we might not also be destroyed. Let me unpack that a little bit for you. God has planned a final destruction for all wickedness. See, to me, the compelling question about hell isn't, how could a God who claims to be love be, you know, have a hell? How could a God who claims to be love, how, how could hell be a thing? That's not the question for me. For me, the question is, how could a God who claims to be love not have a hell? Because, do you remember the cancer and the chemotherapy? The story of the gospel is that every one of us is infected. Every one of us is dying of cancer, metaphorically speaking. How could a God who claims to be love allow that to go on and on and on? How could a God who claims to be love allow sin and evil and pain and destruction to proliferate amongst the very people that he claims to love? How could he not destroy sin? You want to know how God, couldn't, how God could have hell? I want to know how he couldn't. In love, the Father who created you, the God who formed you in your mother's womb, the God who loves you more than my words could possibly even scratch the surface of explaining to you, that very same God said, I'm not going to allow the tumor to kill you. I'm not going to allow it to grow. I'm not going to allow it to take over your life. I'm not going to allow it to go on unchecked. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to kill death. I'm going to destroy it. God knew, though, that the destruction of evil meant the destruction of everything that evil has its grip on. And it's like that inoperable tumor, right? Look. The best thing we can do is inject chemotherapy and blast the radiation and hope that we kill more of it than we do of you, but at the end of the day, we really don't know how to do that. And God says, I do. I do. I'm going to give you the opportunity to reach into your life to take that tumor of evil, that, 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 that 
clump of cancerous cells of sin, and I'm going to remove every one of them from your body. I am going to cleanse you and make you white as snow, right? And we are going to take that ugly, disgusting clump of cancerous sin, and we're going to lay it on the table, and we're going to destroy it. We're going to destroy it. And I believe the gospel, the good news that Jesus came to proclaim, is that the way to make that happen, the very thing that in medical science we don't have the ability to do, but Jesus came and said, oh, God can make that happen. God can make that happen. You can be cleansed of your sin so that when sin is destroyed, it won't destroy you. That's the good news. I want to say that again because I like to say good news and I've been talking about hell a lot today. God came and said the good news is that that cancer in you, that clump of ugly, disgusting sin, we're going to destroy it before it destroys you and you have the ability to be cleansed of it. You have the ability to, be re- to have it removed from you so that when I destroy it, it doesn't destroy you. Who wouldn't take that opportunity? Who wouldn't take that opportunity? Will you take that opportunity? Will you take God at his word? Will you take God at his word when he says, look, destruction is coming. But it's not destruction for you. I didn't create a place for you to be destroyed. I created a place to destroy the thing that's destroying you. And then I sent my son. And I said, follow him. Because he's going to show you how to be removed of the very thing that's destroying you. He's going to show you how to be cleansed from the very thing that's eating your life away. And there's coming a day. There's coming a day. Sick. There's coming a day. Hurt. Wounded, there's coming a day. Downcast, destroyed, discouraged, there's coming a day. Addicted, enchained, enslaved, there's coming a day. There's coming a day. Downcast, hopeless, heavy laden with sorrow, there's coming a day. There's coming a day when it's going to be destroyed. Will you allow Jesus to put it on the table so that you can walk away from it? Would you pray with me? Jesus, we receive that word today. The word is in and of itself, I think, a question. And we rejoice that in this room, There are many who have already made that decision. We hear your words and we stand encouraged knowing that some of these questions that we have had about hell and evil and wickedness and destruction, Lord, there is is news to be told and it is good. We stand encouraged knowing many of us can tell the stories of what that looks like in my life to see the effects of that tumorous sin just removed from my life in preparation for the destruction you have planned for it. 
we receive that good news today. By the same token, Lord, I think there are those in this place that would still wrestle with that. Who would say, I didn't know that God wanted to cleanse me of the very thing that was destroying me. Or maybe I heard it, but I didn't hear it in a way that I really understood it or believed it before. God, I don't want to have cancer anymore. I don't want to await my own destruction, powerless to do anything about it. I want to follow Jesus. I want to follow the one who defeated death so that the only thing in all of creation that would be subject to final death would be death itself. I want to get in that line. I want to follow Jesus. God, I know that I don't have the ability to be perfect in the way so many talk about it. But you know what I can do? I can live my life rooted in my relationship with you. I can tie into the root structure that will provide for me, that will nourish me, that will keep me stable. I can grow and proliferate and be fruitful as you have designed me to be fruitful. Lord, I can be allegiant to Jesus and stop living in rebellion against him. I can do that. Holy Spirit, you're the one that enables us to do that. And so my prayer for my brothers and sisters in this place who are nodding a silent amen to the words that I just said, saying I, I, I could do that. Holy Spirit, descend into those lives, fill them, empower them, change them, transform them. Transform them. Church, keep praying, but hear my words. Do we understand that when we talk about the transformation that comes in our life yielded to Jesus, that's exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about that impact of the tumor being removed, being set aside. That's a different life. That's a different life. Don't be conformed anymore to the world. Don't look like everybody else. Be transformed. The Holy Spirit is flowing over you and filling you and in you and surrounding you and oozing out of you because you're different now. Holy Spirit, for those in this room who would say, I am allegiant to Jesus. Lord, would you fill us afresh and anew? Would you give us strength for this day? Would you give us hope for what lies ahead? And Holy Spirit, would you do what I promised but could never deliver on? Would you encourage us? Would you uphold and strengthen us? Would you fill us? We receive what you have for us today. Church, just a final moment in this attitude of prayer. I believe that today, for some, this could have been a moment of life change. This could have been an awakening. These could have been words that you'd heard before but never understood, never grasped. Today, according to the way Jesus taught about it, you were ripe fruit. You were good soil. You received, you received a word in a way that you never had before. 
And you, that good soil, are prepared now to be fruitful. You are prepared now to yield crops of 30 and 60 and 100 times what has been planted in you. You are that soil. I want to affirm that over you today as you receive this word. You are that good soil. Don't let the enemy steal it from you. Don't let the enemy steal it from you. Receive it now. Care for it. Care for it. Foster it. Nurture it. Let it grow in life. Part of what that means is you need to find a brother or sister in the Lord. You need to share what's, what's going on in your heart today. What the Holy Spirit is speaking to you today. Don't keep it for yourself. Find somebody and share that. Come talk to your pastor. Go talk to a deacon. Share it with a brother or sister that you know loves you and will celebrate with you. God's doing something in your heart today. God is doing something new in your heart today. You're going to go home and tell your friends, the oddest thing happened to me today. I went to church and my pastor had the nerve to talk about hell. And I came away different. And no, I'm not scared. It's not because I'm scared. It's because the Holy Spirit of God descended into my life and filled me and changed me and transformed me and healed me in a way that I didn't expect when I woke up in the morning. But I guess I was ready. That's happening in this room today. That's happening on our YouTube site today. That's happening all around us today. I know it. I know it. I feel like God's showing it to me right now. I know it. Would you share it? Would you care for it? Would you celebrate it? <clears throat> Father, we receive that today. We thank you for your word, which is good. You are always as good as your word. You are always as good as your word. And Jesus, when you said good news, you meant it. You meant it. And so we rejoice in that today. Would you fill us? Would you strengthen us? Would you empower us? We thank you and we praise you in the strong and sufficient name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.